I'm going to take more than 10 seconds to share with you the journey that this particular congregation of people is on and will complete if Jesus tarries. The summary of what I'm about to say is available for you out on the literature table. It just says simply summary, and it's just a, a touchstone in case I forget any of these, uh, these points. But let me share with you where this church has come from and the special character that God has built into this group of people from the very beginning. The church is about 18 years old, and God built it from a group of people who were interested in studying scripture and who were interested in people being mature enough to minister to one another. Only secondarily was it an institutional church. It was never built to be an institutional church. It was always built to be a gathering of people who wanted to worship Christ together, but who wanted to become mature enough to minister. It went through a lot of <clears throat> ups and downs because on the institutional side, they had some leadership that was young and enthusiastic and loved Christ, but was not especially good at holding together institutions. <laughs> um, and so when it got large, it ran into problems because of the inexperience of the leadership, not because of the insincerity, but in the, inex the inexperience. In the midst of all that, I was on the other end of the spectrum. God was forming me, and I was for uh, 15 years um, very much um, dedicated to the institution of the church um, and becoming very good at running institutional churches and was the senior pastor of, of a large, um, the second largest United Methodist Church in Indiana by the time I was 35 years old. But I saw, while I was doing that, the absolutely, absolute silliness of organized religion and the, um, the inconsequential predisposals of gatherings of people that work to build themselves into an institution. Institutionalization, by the way, has a very good... Uh, connotation. It's exactly what happens to people who just want to become a member of our organization. We become dedicated to the least common denominator. Well, God called me to this place in a very special way. And I will not go into the details of that call. It was remarkable. It was one of the few uh, um, signs that God has ever given me that was purely supernatural. Um, and woke me up in the middle of the night one night in Indiana when I did not have any idea why and just really disturbed my heart and began a search for a group of people that I was to become pastor of. The same time this church was going through the search for a pastor, a senior pastor, who had the same sincerity towards God but knew how to handle large groups of people and, and would not, you know... Whereas we needed to be gathered together. Um, so anyhow, the long and the short of it is, I came down here. I was later to find out that a group of people, a group of ladies, began to pray 
at the time that I was awakened in the middle of the night that God would disturb the heart of the pastor who was supposed to be here. And when I came down here, I was called not mainly to be the pastor of a local church. That was not my call down here. My call down here was to begin a movement within Christianity with a group of people who were dedicated to Christ even more than dedicated to the institutional church. However, my job was to be a, a minister of a local church. And when I got down here, the, the, the structurally, not spiritually, but structurally, the church was in bad enough shape that it took some time for me just to be a local pastor. And so that's what I did for the first five years I was here. Uh, I was a local pastor. My first five years was, uh, was up in June. And for five years I've been building the church so that it was stable and healthy. Um, we've been building the church. I haven't done it. The, the elders have been building the church. And, and I have been a part of that process. But with Vernon coming on staff and Kathy coming on staff and, and uh, now Dick coming on staff, we are a healthy, functioning local church. And with that, I gained the freedom to return to my original call, and that is to seek God as to what he would do with us as people in order to follow Christ, not as a church, but as individuals. So I began to seek him. In June, I went away for uh, a week just to be alone with God, and in August, another week to be alone with God, and then September for 18 days or 16 days or whatever it was to be alone with God. And during that time, I had two questions. First of all, I had a question about how to complete what is the purpose of Northland Community Church. The purpose of this church, its mission goal, stated mission goal, is to bring believers to maturity in Christ. Or to bring people to maturity in Christ, not just believers, to bring people to maturity in Christ. And so from that goal, it was my job to look as to say, Lord, how would you, how would you do that with us? The second was just a personal thing. I wanted to know why the church as a whole stayed so immature. And why we kept going over the same foundations that we should have resolved years ago. I mean, I look at training sessions, and they're, ha they're still having sessions on security in Christ, for crying out loud. And why in the world we are still, according to Hebrews 6, 1, going over the fundamental things, why we haven't moved on? Well, the answer to the second question came first when I was in Colorado. And it went like this. The reason, one of the reasons that the church is staying so immature is because it is structured for immaturity. Our method is that of immaturity. We hear messages again and again. We, we make, try to make people institutional dependent, which makes for immaturity right there. As, as soon as you are dependent on your faith to come from an institution, you are guaranteed immaturity. Because the only time you really experience spiritual growth is when you are in that institution or thinking about that institution. Secondly, the method of, of preaching these days. 
Whereas it is maturing, I mean, we're talking about now at least spiritual principles instead of living a good life. But you go to church and hear, what, three spiritual principles a Sunday? Complete a year, you've got 150 or 160 spiritual principles. We are doing with the scripture what the scribes and the Pharisees did with the law. We are, we are deriving so many how-to spiritual principles, how to live Christianity, that we are breaking it down into microcosm and never getting on with the whole thing. Never seeing how all of it connects. You can't live out 150 spiritual principles. Nobody can do that. And what we have been doing is systematically training people not to reform their lives, but training them to forget what's taking place on Sunday. Because there'll always be a, ne- a message next Sunday. And I hope this one fits me. So what God said was that there are certain basic ways, certain basic themes in Scripture that have never changed, that have been there from Genesis and are there in Revelation. And unless we take the time to structure those themes in our lives, not learn about them, not teach about them, you know, depth in this culture is connected with technical elaboration. When, when you say, ooh, that's deep, what you really mean is, well, I've never heard that about it before. I've gained some new information. That's not depth according to God. Depth according to God is how something has changed your life and you'll never be the same again. That's depth according to God. So therefore, you can't have depth with 150 principles a year. I mean, it's impossible. Or defining a little piece of the Bible into its original component part. It's impossible. What we're going to do for the next 10 years, I could spend the next 10 years talking about the next 10 years, is we're going to take one major theme of Scripture per year. And we are not going to define it 52 times. We are going to see how it connects to every area of your life until at the end of that time you have that so interwoven into your character that you are walking in it. And you are not the same person as when you began. Now let me go down through the list of those themes for you. This coming year begins in 1991. This coming year we're going to have an overview of the next 10 years. But we're going to be talking about how to become, and this is the theme of all the 10 years, second mile believers. Most of us get so stuck in the first mile. Well, Lord, what do you require? And I'll try and do that. But Matthew 5.41 speaks about going another mile. More than God requires. And that's what we want to do for God. In keeping with the original uh, version and the original vision of this congregation for spiritual maturity. We want to become second mile believers. So in 1991 we're going to be talking about breaking out of the ordinary spirituality cycle. How you do that. We're going to be talking about growth. We're going to be 
seeing what spiritual warfare is, because anytime you start to break out of your ordinary spiritual cycle, you become a threat to the other side, and you will have problems. And we're going to talk about what, how to recognize eternal things in everyday circumstances. How do you discern that God is with you every day in every circumstance? And so therefore, in that year, we will become second milers. In 1992, we will talk about <clears throat> the purpose of life. From the very beginning, God had a purpose for you as all of his people and for you as an individual. You were not made by accident. You were made by design. How many of you right now can tell me why God made you? And if you can't tell me why God made you, how do you know what you're going toward? How do you know how to live? How do you accumulate anything toward a goal if you don't know what the goal is? From the very beginning, God has wanted you to know your function, not only as a part of his people. We all have a general function and a specific function. And at the end of that year, I would hope that each of us, each of us would have a firm grasp on what the purpose of our life is. 1993, we're going to talk about adversity. From the very beginning, from the garden, God permitted adversity in our lives. Now this is different than just spiritual warfare, although we will talk about spiritual warfare. Because adversity comes from many things. It not only comes from the other side, it comes from ourselves. And it comes from circumstances. And it comes from natural processes. And everybody now in the first mile of living, in the first mile of believing, wants to know how to overcome adversity, wants to know how to cope with adversity. Half the people who come to church for the first time, probably more than half, come because they have a crisis in their life and they want to cope with that crisis. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know God has something more than just coping and being conquerors. The scripture says we are more than conquerors. And that everything God allows to happen in our life, God can use for good. So therefore the question is not how do I cope, but how do I use this particular thing so that it fulfills the purpose of God? How do I turn something bad into something good? Romans 8:28 All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See? So therefore, at the end of that year, all of us could be able to take every adversity in our life and use it for good. So much so that in a way we're glad that it happened. We're not just coping, we're not just hanging on, we're not tying a knot to the end of the rope and hanging on. We are glad that it happened and we are more than conquerors. 1994, we're going to talk about grace and love. I don't know how many people I know 
um, that experience grace and love every day. I know there are very, very, very few people, though, as I said a couple of Sundays ago, who can actually consistently love with God's love, love with agape love. And that is, that's critical. And from the beginning to the end, God has, God has been treating us with grace so that we could be bearers of grace to other people, so that we could love as he loved. And so therefore, we're going to take a whole year and we're going to practice that. And by the end of that year, our lives should be such that we can actually love consistently, not expecting anything in return, and minister God's love in any given situation to the effect that He is in control and He is working our hearts. 1995, we're going to talk about faith. You know, there are many times in our lives, or maybe just a few in several of our lives, when we have to take what we see as a giant step of faith, and we have to depend upon God because there's nobody else to depend on. What is it like, though, to walk by faith and not by sight? What is it like in every area of your life to be accomplishing things that you could not possibly be accomplishing by yourself. Not the crisis moments that are the big moments that say, okay, God, now I really need you. That's first mile Christianity, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what would it be like to have such faith that you could see God working in everything you do, and you could turn every situation towards being used by God? Can you imagine what would happen in your life? Can you imagine what would happen in your world if God had access to everything we did? 1996. After we have experienced how to be more than conquerors, after we have learned our purpose, after we have, have uh, learned how to love and and how to walk in faith, then we're going to talk about what is personal revelation from God and how does that mix with our reason so that we come out knowing what we believe and why we believe it and we can explain it to anybody, including ourselves. In other words, in 1996, we will all learn how to build a solid theology so that we can give an explanation at any time for the hope that is within us. You know, theology has to come after we have grown to the point that we don't use it for intellectualism. And so that's why it takes so long to get to the place where you can put theology in its, in its proper place, but you can't go without it. And therefore, there are a number of people who have no idea why they believe they just do. They have no idea what they believe they just do. And they are so frustrated that they can't share their faith in a way that makes sense. Or they are so frightened that they are doing it at the expense of their own reasonableness. Nobody 
Nobody, no Christian should have to suffer through that kind of doubt. 1997, after that is under our belt, then we're ready for the biggie. Holiness. The whole year we're going to talk about and live out and walk out holiness. The purity of life. How we make ourselves fit vessels for God. And how he permeates everything we do. You know, we sent a couple of pastors away to a, a church about large, or a, a seminar about large churches. And during that seminar, they said there's two reasons people leave a church. One is predictable because they don't feel like they're cared about. Or if they're gone, no one would miss them. The second, though, kind of talk, took me back because I knew about it, but I didn't realize it was such a, a large reason that people leave churches. And that is that they see hypocrisy within the church. And they can't stand it. So they leave. Well, you know what? That's not only the reason people leave churches. That's the reason people don't come to churches. And all my ministerial life, I've been taught cute little sayings about hypocrisy that excuse hypocrisy. You know, well, takes one to know one. Well, we're all hypocrites, and so we need to come to church. And, and well, you know, if you're going to hide behind the hypocrites, hypocrites, that means you're smaller than the hypocrites. All of those little things that would, in essence, say, well, let's just not talk about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is all right. Well, it's not all right. Jesus railed against the hypocrites. It's not all right. And non-holiness is not all right. 1998. After holiness. After purity. Then we go into the world. To be salt and light. Jesus said you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. But what happens when salt's lost its saltness? Well, we're not going to lose our saltness. So therefore, we are going to, in 1998, concentrate on ministries outside of ourselves, outside of this place, outside of our personal lives. Because God put us in this world to contribute, not to grow, <laughs> but to contribute. Things that grow are cancerous. Things that contribute are fruitful. And so therefore, when we have walked that walk, then we will be able to go out and people will be able to see that in our lives. 1999. The point of life in this world, the teleos, the end of it all, is worship in the next. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, to commit your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, unto Almighty God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is more than what we do on Sunday morning. In second mile Christianity, every act we have in this world is an act of worship. And so therefore, we worship all day long. You read Revelation and see what heaven's like. And the fact is, all they do is worship. 
It talks about serving God in Revelation, but it's always in the context of worship. How do you live every day as worship? We're going to learn. And then in the year 2000, we're going to talk about eternity. What it's like. What it's like. And how do you store up treasures in heaven? How do you leave behind in this world when you die? Something that will be pleasing to you as you see it from heaven. And what is heaven like? We're going to talk about that so that we can live in the light of eternity. Now, I want to say to you that this takes a commitment. And when I brought this back to the elders, it wasn't something that they said, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to try this for a year, and if it works, we'll go with it, and if it doesn't work, we won't. It's kind of like trying marriage for a year, you know? Um, it never works. But if you're committed to it for a lifetime, and if you dedicate yourselves to it, you have all of the benefits and all of the growth that it has to offer. I'm asking you to commit yourself for 10 years to this process. You say, well, that's a long time. Well, let me just ask you, what are you going to be doing in 10 years if you don't? If you plan on living 10 years, you might as well be holy at the end of it. Instead of just having the same experience 10 times in a row. The problem with the church one of the problems with the church is it has never had a vision that would allow it to accumulate growth so that it knew where it was going. What it does is it faces the same battles over and over again and it is frustrated because they're doing the same thing in 10 years that they did 10 years ago. They try to do it with church programs or they try to do it with preaching series or they try to do it with all manner of institutional pump-ups. But you can't do this. You cannot do this unless you as an individual are ready to dedicate yourself long-term and you are ready to go to God for significant time with Him so that it's not the church doing the building, it's God doing the building. That's the modus operandi. We won't have 1,500 church programs surrounding this thing. As a matter of fact, the more church programs we have, the more it gives people an excuse not to face God themselves. And not to spend time with their families like they need to. And not to spend time alone and in scripture like they need to. Because they always have a church activity to run to. Nope. If you come here for 10 years, you'll be sent to God. Now I know that, never mind, um, that's the vision. Like I said, I could, I could go on and on. And the, the, t the 10 years, by the way, um, all correspond to a mark of maturity. If you will look at the summary sheet, you will see a mark of maturity in life that corresponds to the themes that came to me out of Scripture. 
So God's working all of this together. But I want to say to you that this will not be a regular church in 10 years. It will be a wonderful gathering of believers. And um, you have only to pray, for, pray about it to see whether or not you want to commit yourself to that time. You say, well, what if I move away? We're working on that. What if new people come, you know, five years from now? They'll adopt. You know, they, they adapt to first mile believing. Well, what if people come in and they can't understand? I mean, if we're, if we're going to be these mature Christians, you know, won't that leave the people who are not even Christians out? You know what I think? I think that more non-believers will be drawn to Christ as they see and hear maturity explained than ever could with the elemental things of Christ. I think non-believers are bored to tears with just the elemental things of Christ. And I think we've grossly underestimated what they want to do with their lives. Because nobody likes the thought of wasting their life on things that are not challenging and important and things don't, that don't take everything in them. So that's where we're going. And you're invited. Now, I did have a message for today. <laughs> but obviously it's going to be shortened. But it fits in very well with the theme. And, and let me just speak a few minutes on it and then we will take communion together. The message is about Jesus as our Lord. And as you see in the, script, or as in the bulletin, I won't even read the scripture because the scripture is not tremendously germane um, to the message that came. I will use a scripture. The scripture that is more germane is Philippians 1.6 where it talks about if I've, got it, if I've got it marked here, I think I do. Yeah, Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a, a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God puts into our lives authorities in order to perfect us. Now, there are three basic types of authorities he puts in our lives. One is a boss. The second is a leader. And the third is a Lord. In your lifetime, you will have many bosses. Some will be good and some will be bad. Some will treat you like dirt and some will treat you like gold. But your job is to obey them. Even in scripture, it talks about obeying your master and working unto them as unto the Lord. That is to build within you the dynamic of obedience, which is valuable in itself. It is also to order this world mechanically so that it works well. So therefore, bosses are a part of God's scheme. The problem is, there's hardly any growth, intellectually or as a person, with a boss. Um, I mean, you can grow in your obedience and you can learn how to respond and you can keep things in order. But that, that part of you that is rebellious will come out more often when you have a boss than you like to think of it. And you will have a tougher time having a boss than you will have any other kind of leader. God gives us bosses, though. He also gives us leader, and these are leaders, and these are few and far between. Some of you have never had a leader in your life. A leader is somebody who works, a boss works through force and authority. 
A leader works through goodwill. A boss um, is somebody who um, will work through uh, uh, sometimes manipulation, always with his mind to the project. A leader will work through enthusiasm. A leader inspires. A boss orders, but a leader inspires. Therefore, there is something that happens to our lives when God gives us a leader. Moses was a leader. He took the children of Israel out of Egypt, even though they were grumbling all the way. No, they wouldn't have followed anybody else. They followed Moses in the dynamic part that God had in his life. Saul was a great general, a great boss, but David was a leader. And the people danced and said, Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. There's a difference. And, and periodically into our lives, God will send us a leader. Someone who draws us all together for a certain purpose. And, it, and we work by inspiration and enthusiasm because we want to. It's the old uh, army be all you can be type of dynamic. You know, it pulls things out of us voluntarily that we didn't even know was in us. And a leader is a wonderful thing to have. There are a few of them. And if we're blessed, we will appreciate them. But the Lord, there's only one Lord. And the difference between a Lord and a leader is that the Lord is the one who completes the act instead of the person. The Lord is the one who completes our lives while we are cooperating with him. It's not a human potential thing. It is a divine act that we witness and we never could have done on our own, no matter how much of a leader we had. Let me tell you one story, and then we'll take communion. Years ago, there was a ship that was made with the state-of-the-art technology that was called the unsinkable ship. And you know what it was, the Titanic. I mean, it had everything, state-of-the-art, all of the best materials. It had all of the best highly skilled crew. And you know what happened to the Titanic on its maiden voyage. It hit an iceberg and sunk like a rock, taking hundreds of people to a watery grave. During that time in Belfast, Ireland, the town of Belfast was going through a horrible grief experience because 16 of its mechanics were on the Titanic, maintaining the Titanic. These were expert mechanics, but they were also good friends in the community. At that time, there was an American preacher scheduled to preach at the church at Belfast. And when that accident happened, and then when it was confirmed, he was scheduled to preach the very next Sunday. So they didn't switch it. But he got up to see a whole congregation full of grieving officials, uh, church officials and, and town officials. And almost every one of the widows and almost every one of their, the, these mechanics now uh, fatherless children. And he began to preach on his theme, the unsinkable ship. Only the term unsinkable ship did not refer to the Titanic. 
It referred instead to this frail little fishing boat tossed like a splinter on the storms of the Sea of Galilee. Secure and unsinkable, not because of how it was made, not because of the skill of its crew, but because one person on board, whose name was Jesus, had control of the situation. Therefore, there was nothing human that made that ship secure. It was only because Jesus was on board that that ship was secure. Let me tell you that we are those people who think that if we just learn enough, and if we just do enough, and if we just become skillful enough, that this life won't be able to sink us. But that's not true. You know, becoming organized and becoming mechanical and becoming uh, um, um, well-functioning is a wonderful thing, but that's not the point. And becoming skillful and all we can be is a wonderful thing, but that's not the point. The point is always, is Jesus on board? That is the only way that we will be unsinkable. And when you look at your individual life and when you look at your family and when you look at the church, it doesn't really matter how well you function and how skilled you are. The thing that really matters is, is Jesus on board? Because that's what makes you unsinkable. Now, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession about our inadequacies, but about also our mistaken philosophy. And as I pray, I invite the, the deacons to come forward in order to distribute the elements so that they can be ready. Lord, I've said a lot today, and I know that we have not been able to comprehend even a tip of the iceberg. But God, as you put this together, as you put it together, and as you are the captain of this ship, I ask you to hear our confession. We do not for a moment presume that we are adequate to fight all of life or even to cope with all of life and to come out unscathed and fulfilled. We want to tell you from the very beginning that you are the only guarantee we have of not sinking, of not sabotaging ourselves or being sunk by circumstances. So as we take this communion, we invite you literally to come on board in our lives. And as we take these caricatures of you, these creatures of bread and wine, we ask you, as they physically pass into us, to spiritually fill us and indwell us so that you are the security of our lives and the guidance of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.